Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know and that you might not know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together and oh my God, we are going to have so much fun doing it. Now as always, I want to remind you if you want to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover for just five bucks a month. You can get every episode of the show ad free. You can join our community discord. We do a community book club. It's a blast. Would love to have you there. Patreon.com slash Adam Conover makes a huge difference to me. Thank you so much. Now, let's talk about this week's episode. This week, we're talking about the lottery. Now, for you Americans listening out there, I want you to imagine for a second that you are not American, that you have come to America from a different country or even a different planet, and you go to your local convenience store. Now, when you get to that convenience store, you might see something pretty weird. You might notice that the convenience store is selling a form of legalized gambling that is run by the state that you are in. Like literally, you give the state of California or Connecticut or New Jersey a dollar and they will enter you into a randomized drawing where you could win money. Now, that's kind of weird because, you know, for most of American history, gambling has been considered a, a vice, a bad thing, a sin in this, you know, historically oppressively Christian nation. So how did it come about? that the lottery is so popular that it is played by one in eight Americans every single day and is so embedded in the fabric of our society that it is run by the literal government. Aren't you a little bit curious about that? Well, I am too. Not only is the history of the lottery incredibly fascinating, after you listen to this episode, I think you'll have to agree that the lottery is not an entirely uh, good thing in American life. And no, I'm not just talking about the fact that, you know, everyone who wins the lottery ends up unhappy and dead at the bottom of a well or whatever the Netflix documentaries already told us. The actual truth about the lottery is much weirder and darker even than that. So let us get to the interview because this episode is a banger. My guest today is Jonathan D. Cohen. He's a historian, and he's the author of the book For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. Please welcome Jonathan Cohen. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Or do you prefer John? John is great. Okay. John, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, so you have a new book out about lotteries. I'm so excited to talk about this because I had uh, my own intuition about lotteries, something that occurred to me a number of years ago where some, you know, some facts in your life start to fall into place, right? So right out of college, I worked at a gas station in upstate New York and I sold lottery tickets and I had never interacted with a lottery before, but I saw the different variety of lottery games. There are scratch-offs. But I also, people come in to play the numbers game. That's what it's called in New York yeah. State, the numbers. And there are three numbers that are chosen every day, you know, randomly one, four, and six or whatever. And there are different ways of betting on them. You can either try to get the exact number or you can do a box or whatever mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, the number's in any order or I get two out of the three numbers or whatever. There's different ways to chop it up. And so I got used to selling these tickets and I learned about it. Then a number of years later, I was reading a book about the mob. <laughs> And, and or or actually, was it the mob or was it about? Um, it might have been about numbers games in uh, Harlem, New York. It was something about you know illegal lotteries yeah. in New York, and it described uh, 
that, oh, well, three numbers were chosen randomly and you could do the box or you could do the whatever. And I was like, hold on a second. This is the same game. The New York State Lottery reproduced the same game as was run by organized crime like 100 years earlier. That's fucking weird. That's, wait, why would the new, that's, that's bizarre, right? That's like yeah. if, uh, I, I don't know, you ban dog fighting and then the state says, well, now we have state sanctioned dog fightings because people like them so much. Um, so I noticed this and I was like, this strikes me as something very weird about this public institution that has been around obviously my whole life for many generations um, that I've gotten very used to. And it made me think there must be some fascinating history there. And I believe you're on the show this week to tell us what that history is. Like, why yeah. why did that happen? What is the history of lotteries in America? Yeah, well, uh, uh, I'm a historian, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start far back. But yes. I'm going to proceed real quick just to, to get us through. Oh, so, oh so take all the time you want. This is what we are here yeah. for. We're here for right. the deep dive on this show. This is one of those Dan Carlin six-hour podcasts, <laughs> right? So I can um, – yeah. so, so lotteries are first used as for – as sources of public good and civic innovation. Um, as far as I can tell, in the 15th century Belgium, they wow. pretty make their way pretty quickly into England where there's a big lottery commissioned by the queen in 1567. And then they're used sort of most auspiciously to fund British colonization of Jamestown wow. uh, and the Virginia colony in the 16th century, in the 17th century. By the state, um, by like the queen is saying like, hey, the, to raise money, you can. Uh, so it would be like the Virginia lottery, uh, excuse me, the Virginia shipping company or whatever the, the, you know, they outsourced colonization to these private companies. The mm. Virginia Bay Colony, excuse me, company, would hold a lottery to raise funds. And this, and then, I'll just jump ahead a little bit, but in the United States, in, or in the colonies, they sort of serve the same purpose, in part because it's really hard, especially if you live six weeks by boat from a banking center, to raise capital and just to get cash to build stuff, to build roads, to build bridges, to build churches, and especially in the colonies, which pretty quickly become defined politically by a hatred of taxation, uh, the best way to raise money without actually raising taxes is to hold a lottery and hope that that is could provide enough for the civic uh, for the civic purposes that you need. So lotteries were initially used as like an alternative form of taxation. You don't want to tax people. You don't want to say, hey, everyone has to pay me money so I, for my colony or my bridge or whatever because that might make the wealthy people mad. A lot of people won't want to do that. Instead, we'll do an opt-in tax where you... Uh, everyone gives me money for free and I, and you know, somebody gets a random big bonus at the end, which of course is less than I'm bringing in overall. So I come out ahead. It's, it's basically a stealth tax. Right. A vo voluntary taxation to yeah. borrow a phrase from, from Thomas Jefferson. And I'll say just among the folks who use it are universities you might've heard of like Harvard, Princeton, Yale wow. that use lotteries to fund the construction of dormitories specifically. And then lots and lots of those old churches you see when you drive through New England, uh, those are paid for with lottery money. Wow. And so I imagine this is a, this is an exciting community event when this happens in colonial America, kind of like the, uh, I don't know, oh, the university's throwing a lottery for the new dormitory. Everyone go down and buy, t like, I can just imagine you're, you're bored in the countryside in Massachusetts yeah. in, in right. like 1650 or whatever. It must be exciting. And, and the only, and, and it's, it is exciting, except the only in retrospect, what seems like I can't believe this was exciting is these these lotteries are effectively raffles. Mm. Uh, the to what we have today, you don't pick your own numbers. You're buying a ticket, and actually, the tickets are sort of expensive, which is how we get this practice called insuring the lottery, which is how we get this thing called policy gaming, which is how we get the numbers games mm. because for it's for people who couldn't afford like a full ticket because it might be like three Whoa. pounds, but that's the equivalent of like twenty five dollars. So you have like sort of like a side bet, and then the side bet has numbers, and that's where you get these numbers games initially. 
initially. Um, it. It well, let's, looks totally different from what we have now. Let's step through that in a second. But you did say raffle, and that made me realize, oh, yeah, of course, I know a raffle, like the church raffle. That's yeah. that's very commonplace and very benign. And, you know, you win, what, a, a date with the pastor and a stuffed animal or something like right. that. Um, if you lose, you get a date with the pastor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it, it was, it was it's designed in such a way, it's unlike Powerball or Mega Millions, who, who, which are designed so that theoretically no one can win and then the prize gets bigger. This mm. is designed such that someone is almost guaranteed to win. Right. There'll, be a bl- there'll be blank slips inside for, for sort of mathematical probability reasons and to, and to weigh things out. And maybe nobody wins on a first drawing, um, but you're, you're sort of guaranteed on the spot. The problem is if you live eight weeks into the countryside on a wagon, who's going to tell you right. uh, that you won until the next time you come to market uh, <laughs> with, with your wares. <laughs> okay. But so these were being done by large institutions that presumably had a lot of reputability in the, in the community. What was the next phase of lottery evolution? Yeah, so so they so they're done by reputable community. I will just say, but you need often permission from your local governor mm. or the state. And in some states, the the state of Pennsylvania, for example, like owned a wheel, like a lottery wheel, sort of like a bingo wheel we know today, and would like lend it out to you for a twenty five dollar fee or whatever mm. to hold your hold your lottery. This is, I guess, presumably a way to make it make people feel that the games aren't rigged. Oh, the state or there's some government agency that's organizing this process mm-hmm. and that owns the actual instruments yeah. uh, that are being used. Someone to else could build them. their own their own lottery wheel, but hey, if it's the state of Virginia's lottery wheel, you trust it a little bit more. Right, a little bit more. But but, but quickly actually these games go away. In the 1820s, 1830s, um, amid the Second Great Awakening, the sort of rise of evangelical religious fervor, uh, states start cracking down on them and banning them. Cuz it's gambling. Um, this, this is gambling writ large, and then lotteries, I mean, are, are as commonplace then as they are today and sort of are, are the example above all of – and again, gam- lotteries are different from other types of gambling. Other gambling, you, you hang out with your friends, you play poker in your, in your house, whatever. Lotteries rely on mass participation, on as many people as possible in as many places buying in, and therefore they're, they're unique as a public policy problem. Uh, because of their their inherently wide reach compared to other types of games. So during the second great, you said the second great awakening, right? Which yeah. is a big, uh, I believe we've talked about it on the show before. Big mass American religious movement. Basically, everyone's like, I'm going to start my own cult, and there's suddenly a million cults and religious groups all over uh, the United States. Isn't that the period that Mormonism comes out of? I believe, right? Um, a little later, but yeah, oh, we're, we're yeah. same conversation. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So and they start. Gambling becomes an enemy of this movement, and they say, "Oh, this is a sin and a vice, and it's awful." And lotteries right. are the most pervasive, so they start to get shut down. That's right. And there's actually one that well, they I, they come back very briefly after the Civil War, um, but just again, states are sort of facing this fiscal crunch. But then, what we get by the 1890s is there's just one state lottery left. It's in Louisiana, and it's just this absolutely corrupt. <laughs> enterprise that rakes in millions. Like I think it's like $28 million a year or something. They pay a total of like $500,000 in taxes. They just bribe their way through the Louisiana state legislature every single year to keep their charter and to keep their monopoly. And most importantly, they sell tickets all over the country. Wow. So you're living in Massachusetts. Massachusetts and every state between Massachusetts and Louisiana has banned lotteries, but Louisiana Lottery Company uh, called the, the Golden Octopus would sell <laughs> tickets all over the country. Um, and, and get people to play. And this is the this is the reason this is important is because it takes Congress to finally crack down ah. uh, uh, on on Louisiana because that's when they banned the interstate transportation of lottery tickets, uh, ah. interstate transportation of gambling advertising. 
getting a little ahead of myself, those are going to be really big problems for state lotteries when they start up in the 60s that all these old congressional laws are still on the books. Mm. But that it takes Congress to slay the golden octopus. And to be clear, uh, this the, the golden octopus, this is a private company, but it's it's chartered or allowed by the Louisiana uh, the the Louisiana legislature, uh, I assume yeah. some bribery and some kickbacks. They're not really yeah. paying taxes, but like, so it's uh, it, it's it's definitely a private company capturing what what was once done as a public like right. need to fund public shit. And they're ostensibly funding like a hospital or like a children's mm-hmm. hospital in 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 Louisiana. That's where the money goes, and it's always been very important for lotteries that you have some beneficiary of a good cause right. that can justify your participation. That's the same thing that we I mean, literally lotteries advertise that way today. But in this case, it was a uh, it was a lie. I assume yeah. we'll go on to talk about whether or not it's a lie today. Don't spoil. <laughs> yeah, uh, but okay. But so- it's a fraction. Even even today, it's it's a significant percentage. Back then, this we're talking like five hundred thousand dollars out of twenty eight million dollars in sales. That would like. Any lottery commission would get murdered if they offered, you know, odds like that today. Okay, so it's basically stamped out in the United States. Uh, so what happens? What happens next? So that's when we get to to your beloved numbers games and policy <laughs> games. That that so again, policy has these roots in the 18th century. Has been basically popular in the black community almost exclusively in the 19th century. This sort of practice of ensuring the game and the game changes. You now you get you draw. 12, it's very complicated. You draw 12 numbers between 1 and 78, and you need to pick, pick, pick a, per, a certain number within the 12. It's not worth getting into. But pretty quickly, this guy, um, in 1924, roughly, Casper Holstein, who's a uh, black immigrant from the, the West Indies, invents numbers games, uh, as we come to know them today, which are daily or multiple times a day numbers games that crucially can't be rigged. So th- this is a genius innovation is basically you open the newspaper and if you know where to look, you can find the winning number. Mm. And at the time it was, you know, the, the last three digits, let's say, of the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. Um, so you can't ri- you can't rig that. You know, no one's going to affect how much how much the stocks get traded in a single day. That's what the number is going to be. And to your point, you bet it box, you bet it straight, whatever. And, and it's probably a pretty good pseudo random number. If you were in what, what you said, so this is the late 19th century. Uh, this is this is now the early twentieth. Okay, yeah. so the early twentieth yeah. century. If you're trying to come up with a a random number as best you can, looking at the last three digits of a large number is pretty good because, like, it's uh, you know the the it's what the 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 total value of the stock exchange or the volume yeah, traded. Exactly, it, it, it's crazy because you do like you do one digit from one, two digits from the other. It's not worth getting into, but yeah, it's it's some some combination yeah. of numbers that are printed. There. I mean, if yeah. I wanted to find a random number today, that would be not a bad method. Uh, honestly, I'm sure there's some. Some statistical bias in it somewhere, but it's yeah. like that's a pretty smart thing to do. And I just want to talk a little bit more about the you talked about the policy or the insurance piece of it, where you're you're betting in the uh, uh, you know you have a number of ways of chopping up the bet. Um, yeah. And you said we got there because what the original tickets were too expensive, and it was a way to make it more accessible. I find that part of it really interesting because it's like uh, I've experienced the same thing the one or two times I've gone to a horse track. Where it's like, oh, well, you can just bet on which horse you think is going to win, but then you don't have a very good chance, and it's not that much fun if you lose. But if you start chopping the bet up and saying, oh, wait, I can, uh, I'll, I, I'm creating a, a number of diff- different scenarios in which I'll win less money, but I have a yeah. better chance of winning. But maybe now I'll win you know, a dollar and five cents for every dollar I bet. Uh, but still, like that's a, it's a way of making it, of increasing mass participation, right? Because you can play right. more for less money. Or a lot, is that right? Yeah, well, and, and the, what's great about numbers games and, and policy, too, is that it's just 
when it's not being run by the state, for example, or by some big entity that has needs to raise a certain amount of money, when it's just being run by a company, they'll take a penny and they'll take a dollar. So mm-hmm. you can bet as little as a penny when it comes to things like numbers games. And there are runners who will take your bet. And even if you're hoping to just to make 25 cents or $6, you know, if you bet a penny, you'll get a payout of roughly 5 or $6. For people who only have a penny, and, you know, a penny then is worth, I don't know, a do- maybe a dollar now, let's say. Yeah, uh, it's it's not nothing. Yeah, um, and 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 the, you're you're right. You're what you're hitting on is the accessibility and the the focus on letting as many people, particularly as many poor people uh, as possible, sort of get a stake right. in the game. And it lets people feel like they can strategize. Oh, here's what I do. This is my this is my way of doing it. I box yeah. this and I do that and I do my birthday and blah 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 blah. And I've got all these different things. I've got five or six different bets going on in every single day and. Uh, most days one of them hits, or at least right. they do often enough that it's a lot more fun and it lets you feel like you're in control of it more than, you know, it's not roulette, it's blackjack or something. I don't know. what. That's a bad comparison. People do have strategy. They do think, like, the, the, this huge industry, One of the, some of the best-selling books of the early 20th, late 19th century are dream books that tell you how to convert images you have in your dream into numbers. Whoa. So, oh, Adam dreamed of a dog riding a fire truck last night. Dog <laughs> is number 726 and fire truck is 435. And that, and so therefore he should play that in the numbers. And I, I tell this anecdote in my, in my book, but someone who, who dreamt of a number and won money this way was Colin Powell's father, <laughs> who had a dream that uh, of a number, I don't, it doesn't say about number, and they basically scrapped together every single dollar their family could get, end up being $25 in the late 50s, put it on a number, they hit, and that's what let them buy their first house wow. uh, in Queens, is that Colin's Powell father hit the numbers. And that's what brought us the war in Iraq, right? Because yeah, of- thank you, numbers games, you did it again. <laughs> well, no, but that was, but I think that's a really illustrative example, because th- these are folks who, I don't know their entire family history, but the, what, what you're describing, it was like the lottery was a path to the middle class for, for Jamaican that- Immigrant working at the at the, at the, at the uh, as a shipping clerk in New York in yeah. the nineteen fifties. Yeah, and so who, so who was running these games? You said uh, this this fella invented the idea of the numbers game and and that couldn't be fixed. But yeah. who is uh, if if they've been banned by most states and by Congress, you know, for, on an inter- interstate basis, who's running them? That's a great question, and it's a great question in part because it's really hard to figure out, and because they're illegal, there's not a great. No one's like you know keeping mm. great records uh, of these kind of things. So initially, they are absolutely run within the black community and by um, uh, black numbers operators or racketeers, uh, if you want to be unkind, um, who are you know they're taking money from poor people and enticing them to gamble, but are reinvesting a lot of the money back in the community, and they are employing huge numbers of. Um, young black men in particular who are sort of collecting bets and have routes and they tell people when they won. Um, and then it, it's different in every city, but at some point, you know, organized crime does try to muscle in. And we're talking about, you know, the classic Italian or Irish gangsters um, who see how much money uh, is is being spent on the games and try to muscle in. In some cities, it's ineffective. In Boston, for example, they just take the whole thing over. I don't want to emphasize, I don't want to say imply that it's only black people who are playing the games, a lot of Latino white working class people who are playing as well, um, but who's in control. White, the, the white organized crime often is bankrolling it. Sometimes they have direct control over it, and sometimes they, they, get, they, get, they get pushed out, it, uh, and it remains black control. Is there some reason that in the black community at this time that, that lotteries took root specifically? Is there some history there? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to, to policy a little bit, which was, again, sort of always the black equivalent to the to the lottery. Uh, uh, 
going back hundreds of years. Um, I mean, I do think for many of the same reasons we see disproportionate lottery play in black communities today in terms of uh, unlike other forms of economic advancement, uh, lotteries don't discriminate. Mm. Uh, lotteries uh, are – everyone has just as bad odds uh-huh. uh, of hitting. And so why couldn't Colin Powell's father you know, hit, win the lottery and buy a house in right. Queens when, when he might not be able to get a loan from a bank? I mean, yeah, that's example. a great explanation when you've been shut out of every other means of advancement than the one – this is the one that is still open to you even though the game is rigged against you. Well, it's actually not as rigged. <laughs> As right. real estate or banking or capitalism in general to, uh, from from that perspective. Especially if, and this is not always the case, but especially if the money that you lose is actually going to be in re- reinvested in your community. Sure. If the, if the numbers operator is actually somebody you know, yeah. for example, then, then the, even better. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, last year I read a book called Small Time by a journalist named Russell Shorto who wrote about his father's, I believe it was his father's, um, history as a gangster in, uh, like, an, you know, an Italian mobster in, oh, I forget where, somewhere in New Jersey, right? Um, but the way he described, it was a really wonderful family memoir um, about his own relationship with his father, blah, 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 blah. But um, part of it that stuck with me was, you know, they were part of this sort of, uh, the book's called Small Time, this sort of small time part of the mob. And he's like, mm-hmm. what did they actually do? They offered gambling to everybody right. in the town. And the way he describes it is kind of that people also just wanted to gamble. Like there was just a demand for gambling. People, uh, Americans, people anywhere, they like to gamble. If you don't provide them with a way to gamble, they will come up with a way to gamble. And so the way that his family at that time looked at it was like, oh, we're providing important fucking gambling services to people. Um, and so there is there is that element of it as well to a certain extent, right? That this is just like yeah. something that people just want to do. Right, and we, and we can get into this and... and it's tough. The, a 1976 Federal Gaming Commission, a uh, gambling commission, their opening words of their re- final report is gambling is inevitable, mm. which I, th- I think is true to some degree in the way that you're describing. The question is, is it inevitable that we have a $91.4 billion a year industry run by the state that advertises and, incentive- <laughs> and, and, and entices people to play? Yeah. There, there's some question of when we when we move away from it being a voluntary tax into a Almost like almost yeah. compulsory, you know, almost like yeah. you're so enticed that you sort of have no option but to participate. Well, there's a question there, but I think you're right. Fundamentally, uh, there is some inevitability to the participation. Well, we're going to get to that modern form in a little bit. But at the time that we're describing here, early 20th century, yeah. what you have instead is lotteries or numbers games or different variations on this almost across the country. Right. Like in every uh, if I live in Peoria, Illinois, there's probably a lottery that's probably run by some local small time gangsters. Right. Yeah. That I can go to every day and that people know and sort of trust to an extent. Am I am I right in that vision? Yeah, I, I think I think the, the the conversation and the vision is often about these big operators. And then there's a lot of sort of exactly the example you laid out, sort of small time people who just sort of do it for fun. And, and I'll point folks to a, an amazing memoir uh, by Bridget Davis about her mother who ran a numbers game in Detroit mm. um, and how much of it was built on personal relationships and trust. Right. Uh, even though her mother had to sort of rely on organized crime sometimes. If, t- if too many people were betting on a single number and if that number hit, she would lose everything. So you sort of <laughs> offshore some of your risk to organized crime. Uh-huh. Um, but a lot of it is, is really small, um, especially, I mean, especially concentrated in urban uh, northeast and mm-hmm. Rust Belt cities. So Peoria is, is a great example. I don't know if it makes it to California, for example. Um, but those are, no coincidence, 
th- these are the first states that enact a lottery are the ones that have all this uh-huh. uh, num- illegal numbers gaming already happening. But so, so at this point, we're making it sound so like sort of nice and quaint and community based here. But this yeah. is really like part of the fabric of American culture at this point that like as it's a it's a neighborhood thing that everyone's familiar with. So look, uh, we have to take a really quick break, but when we come back, I want to find out what the fuck happened next and how this how this was all taken apart. Uh, we'll be right back with more Jonathan Cohen. Okay, I'm back with Jonathan Cohen. We're talking about the lottery in America. So in the early 20th century, we had these small-scale lotteries sort of distribute around, distributed around the country that were run by local operators. Clearly, those don't uh, exist today. <laughs> um, so what happened? What, what eradicated the uh, local, small-time, organized crime lottery? Well, the, the real one was that the state came in. Uh, the the subtext that maybe we don't have to get into uh, is that the war on lotteries is what immediately preceded the war on drugs. Mm. And before the war on drugs, basically what police used to arbitrarily arrest and harass people, particularly people of color uh, in urban America, was numbers games. Because wow. basically everyone was playing the numbers or was running a numbers game. So if you wanted to sort of just beat up a kid on the street or grab some people and throw them in a pen – Almost ine- invariably, you can find number slips in this, their pocket. This is like a cliche from a uh, uh, you know from from a cops and robbers movie. You know, hey, he's been running the numbers. Like lock him up. Exactly. You know? yeah. Like <laughs> exactly. Ah, what are you doing around here? You're racketeering. Running the num-. like it's just like I didn't. Even, I just thought it was like a random phrase. Um, and yeah. yeah, so you could literally just like do a stop and frisk, stick your hand in someone's pocket, and find find. Oh, you've been you've been playing the the lottery. You're I'm exactly. taking you downtown. Exactly. So, so not to say that that all that enforcement was particularly effective yeah. uh, in terms of your initial question, but organized crime sort of does pivot from the numbers games to drugs, uh, and that sort of is one one blow, I guess, to this local operator version uh, mm-hmm. of the numbers games. But the real death knell uh, is the rise of state games, uh, which start in 1964 in New Hampshire, but then by the early 70s, as other states are getting on board, they're adding daily numbers games, and they can offer safer payouts. A lot of stuff that the illegal games can't. Well, let me just ask uh, as well. Yeah. In you know the mid twentieth century, there was a huge push to shut down organized crime by the FBI and you yeah. know the federal government in general. And was that part of this story too? Yeah. So the 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 I, I, in an ironic way. So the Keith Haver hearings, which you're alluding to, which which first of all in the 1950, 1951, had more. These are organized crime Senate hearings around the country. They had more viewers than the World Series wow. in 1950, 1951. People are just watching this uh, like it can't miss TV. And uh, ironically, so it, so Estes Keith Haver, who's a senator from Tennessee, he implants in the public mind this idea that gambling isn't just something the mob does. It is what enables the mob to do everything else that it does. Mm. Isn't it, it isn't just a source of income. This is how the mob buys prestige, how they buy protection to run narcotics, how they run uh, protection to run prostitution rings, sort of you name it. He sort of sees gambling as at the heart um, of what they do. And ironically, all these investigations, and there are a couple others that follow them, reveal to the public how profitable gambling is and help whet legislators' appetite for legalized games in the first place. Mm. Like maybe they never would have realized how, how, popular, how, how profitable these things are if it weren't for all these uh, uh, superboy crime fighters trying to show off uh, how much money they put on the table by arresting all these numbers operators. But so what is the connection where, like, uh, okay, you know, obviously the state whether you're talking about the the federal government or the state governments or even a city, obviously they need money. They're always trying to raise revenue. 
But yeah. what is the link that makes them look at this and go, oh, wow, there's a lot of money be made in, being made here. We should get in on this. I mean, that, that occasionally happens. You know, if you look at marijuana legalization, that's often framed as, hey, this is a way that the state can, like, raise revenue. Um, but... It, it's not like we're doing that with, you know, crack or or like other, you know, it seems yeah. like pretty rare that the government is is that or that legislators are that focused on, hey, let's get in on this racket. So right. why why would it why would that happen? Right. So I think the fact that lotteries are old and have these sort of historical roots mm -hmm. makes them a little less scary. You know, no one's ever tried other than Portugal, you know, legalizing all drugs, for example. So that would be sort of a step too far. Um, for a lot of folks. And then I, I argue uh, that, you know, in the 40s, 50s, states basically had this amazing economic arrangement where they could raise services without raising taxes, just because of the unique circumstances of the post-World War II American economy. And mm. in the 1960s, that starts crashing. Ah. Uh, inflation, Vietnam, states just basically need money, but folks... Uh, voters don't want to raise their taxes and they don't want to lose any of the service, services they have. And right. if that's the case, you sort of, you need to get money somewhere and gambling is one of the only ways to do so without taxes. Yeah, the post-war economy as this strange bubble that like created, I've talked about on the show before how, you know, when we look back in the 40s and 50s, we think, oh, that's how life was for most of America. No, it was actually a short little post-war bubble where we dominated the world economy. Right. And... You know, that's why everyone had a two-car garage and a chicken in every pot. But then when things started changing, nobody was ready for it. And when you look at the levels of taxation, that's also the highest level of taxation on the wealthy. That started going down. So there's this need to suddenly replace revenue. Right. And and now that Germany and Japan are back on the scene after, you know, rebuilding their economy, after we rebuilt their economy after World War II, yeah. you know, for example. Yeah. But, Absolutely. But there's something else I'm just curious about in this dynamic where you had said that the state lotteries were originally banned because of this, you know, the Second Great Awakening, this religious movement, a bit of Puritanism. I'm sure we can chart that with the temperance movement, too. And, you know, there's a lot of strains there. But now it's what? It's like just 50, 60 years later. Um, and the states are going, ah, never mind. Like this kind of gambling is OK. And the interesting dynamic to me is you say the, it's the biggest ratings ever hearings on TV about this, about how this this is illegal activity. But the revulsion isn't about the gambling because the states just turn around and reinstate gambling right via the lottery. The revulsion is about something else uh, that people are upset about. And I'm looking at it. And is it that it's racial outgroups? Right. It's like we've got Italians who are, you know, making this service for, you know, black Americans. And that's what. People are, is that the seediness of it? Like, hey, let's, you know what? Let's let's turn this back into a thing that white people are running or, or non-Italian white people are running. Yeah, yeah well, there, there's a, a lot of, um, I think the, an important comparison here that that is on the minds of a lot of people is prohibition. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the aftermath of prohibition, people realize, even some people in the temperance movement, that making something illegal doesn't just make it go away, Yeah, for example. So starting 60s, 70s, Especially there is a rise, we don't have to get into this, the rise of a sort of victimless crime as a, as a rhetoric that sort of emerges for the first time and gambling sort of fits the bill mm -hmm. as a victimless crime. And a lot of folks don't know this. In the early 70s, a couple states decriminalized marijuana sort of very, very briefly. Oh, wow. um, in part because of this victimless crime uh, rhetoric. And this idea, and if there's all these surveys at the time uh, in the 60s and 70s of people who see a lot of illegal gambling, believe that police officers know about illegal gambling, believe the police officers take bribes and therefore don't do anything on purpose. So they're like, we, why is this still illegal? Why doesn't the state raise money from it when 
clearly making it illegal and trying to enforce it and paying all this money for law enforcement is not working. Right. Okay. So, uh, so, so the states start instituting lotteries again. And what's, again, crazy to me is that, like, they're using the exact same game patterns that the people who they're sending to prison use. They're like, oh, okay, we're going to send you to jail for doing this, but great game idea. Let me start selling it at the convenience store and taking a, taking a cut of it. I wish they were that smart. They're not smart. They're not quite smart enough to do that. It takes them a couple of years to add the daily numbers. Okay. The, I can't even explain how absolutely insane the early New Hampshire and New York lottery games were, in part because of federal taxes that they had to deal with. But it like has to be tied to a horse race. But you so you do a horse race. It's like live on the spot. You're doing a horse race, but you then you do a drawing. But your drawing is about which race you're gonna do, and then another drawing of which which horse in which race you're gonna is gonna be affiliated with your ticket. And again, there's all these weird taxes and this is meant to be so it can't be rigged and horse racing is the sport of kings, so it's supposed to raise the reputation. But tickets are really expensive and it basically it sucks. Like yeah. no one wants to no one wants to do it. And New Jersey is what it first, sort of first crafts this daily or excuse me, weekly um, weekly lottery game, and then in the mid-70s, finally, these states get their act together and add the daily numbers, uh, as we know and love them today. Got it. New Jersey innovating in... <laughs> in, in gambling, as always, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Um, okay, well, so thank you for taking us through the history. Let's start talking about lotteries today. Like, when we talk about what, what the, the role that the lottery holds today in American life, how do you describe it? Yeah, I, I, first of all, I think it's a lot bigger uh, than people who don't play the lottery would imagine, uh, myself included, until I, I started working on this book. You know, one in eight Americans play the lottery uh, at least once a week. Mm. Um, and I think uh, just in terms of its role in American life, I think a lot of people, a lot of those one in eight Americans view it as sort of, frankly, their best shot at the American dream. And not just a, a form of entertainment, not just a game, um, but really their last best only chance uh, at a new life. And who are the folks, you know, when you say that one in eight, uh, who are the, who is that one in eight predominantly? The top 20 to 30% of lottery players account for as much as 70 to 80% of lottery sales. Mm. And that group, that 20 to 30%, that one in eight, um, are disproportionately black or Latino, uh, less educated uh, and lower income uh, than the average American. Got it. I, I mean, this is sort of true of all gambling scenarios, even in video games that involve, you know, uh, loot boxes and stuff like that. There's always whales. There's always the people who are, you know, that top, that, that small percentage is making the top of your profits. But normally when we right. say whales, you imagine someone who's got a lot of money. <laughs> right, but right. Uh, uh, that, this that, is someone who doesn't have a doesn't yeah. have a lot of hope and is willing to sort of bet everything they do have yep. uh, on this distant, distant dream yep. uh, of something better. Yeah, something I think about with this a lot is uh, there's this a wonderful book by uh, Matthew Desmond called Evicted. We've had him on the show before mm -hmm. and talked about this, um, but yeah. he talks about the psychology of that, where when you have so little and you have the choice between like saving your one dollar in a bank account, where you, wh wh what return return am I going to see from that? I'm not gonna. That's not going to elevate my standard of living at all. Why not? do something that's fun and that has a hope and promise at the end of it. Like yeah. it seems from my position, I'm like, well, Hey, the expected value of that is less than the dollar that you spent. And so therefore you're, right. you're guaranteed to lose. And like, that doesn't make any sense to a person who is living on so little, right? Um, right. Like the psychology right. changes. And, and so it's, it's somewhat rational when you're actually in that position or at least understandable. Exactly. I think it's I think it's so understandable. And there's so many things um, uh, to go on that. I think 
I mean, a lot of lottery players are actually not the very, very bottom, the bottom quintile of income. It's the second quintile. It's folks who mm. have disposable income to play, but maybe not enough hope, opportunity, entrepreneurship access, you know, side hustle, yep. opportunity, like whatever, to, to, to get it elsewhere. Um, and I think there's sort of two types of lottery, and this is totally anecdotal from whatever, seven years of research, but it's anecdotal. There's two types of lottery players. One is the one you just described, who's hoping to turn $1 into $60 to get them through the night. And the other are this sort of second quintile folks who are just looking to get ahead and looking for the American dream and really see no other way that by which it's going to come to them. Well, yeah, something that's really interesting in, you know, talking through the history and the numbers games and the modern lotteries today, one of the biggest differences to me is the dominance of games like Mega Millions. I mean, when you're talking about numbers, you know, three numbers are going to be chosen and you can chop up those numbers however you want. You can engineer a betting strategy that means that you can play every day, you can bet a dollar every day, and you'll win on average 90 cents or something like that. Like, uh, you know, I once as a, you know, me and me and some friends bought $100 worth of $1 scratch-off tickets, right? And mm -hmm. we scratched them all off. And at the end, we had earned like 80 bucks, right? So we had only lost 20 yeah. bucks. And it made me go, oh, okay, if you just want to do this for fun, if you just like scratching off lottery tickets... You can just do that. You're going to lose money, but you're not losing that much overall. You're you're winning always a little bit less, and so you get that feeling of winning once every day or so, etc. But that's very different from the uh, from the Mega Millions psychologically, where yeah. or the Powerball, where you know we just sold here in California. I think one of the biggest. I say we as though I had anything the fuck to do with it. But yeah, you were you worked at the, you worked at the convenience store in <laughs> yeah. Sacramento, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a convenience store in California, and someone got a lottery ticket that was over a billion dollars. Two two billion, two billion, two billion dollars, which is. Obviously, I mean, that's not even, that number is not even rich. That's wealth, you know. Um, yeah. uh, now, I think if they cash it in, they get, what, $700 million, something like that. Still, that's That's a crazy amount of money. And that if you're, if you're going for that lottery, you're expecting to receive zero every single day. Every single day you go and buy that ticket and you don't hit on anything. And you're like, I'm going to go buy it tomorrow anyway. That is very different psychologically than going and paying a game where you're expecting to win. You know, you're doing the crossword puzzle scratch off where, you know, you expect to win pretty often. That's right. And I, I'll just emphasize Mega Millions Powerball gets all the attention, but it's roughly 13, 15 percent of total lottery sales. Oh. The, the the real moneymaker are scratch tickets. Got it. And that's where that's exactly what you're describing, where folks are putting in two dollars, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, getting thirty dollars back, putting in another twenty dollars, getting ten dollars back, putting that back in. All of a sudden they've spent a hundred dollars on lottery tickets. Yep. And this is how lottery tickets end up. Americans spend more on lottery tickets than on you know cell phones uh, or smartphones because $50 becomes 30, becomes 20, becomes 10. All of a sudden you're at a hundred bucks, yeah. uh, even though you started with 50. So do you really, do you feel that that form of ticket is uh, more pernicious than the mega millions or do you draw a comparison at all between them? Because yeah. what you're describing sounds more like slot machines to me where you're sitting in front of it. You pull the lever because it gives you that winning feeling often enough. You go, you know, I, I would see people when I worked at that gas station come in and they would buy you know, $300 worth of scratch-off tickets, and they would sit there and do all of them in the store and then turn them back in, and I was like, okay, they they won on enough of them that they are having a good time, but they're also spending so much on this every day. So so when you say pernicious, it's a, it's a tough question because I think the perniciousness of Mega Millions Powerball is not just in the gambling in and of itself. I think those games have totally warped American sense of wealth. 
uh, and their beliefs and, and their ideas. And that's, that's something that's very hard to quantify mm-hmm. compared to something like scratch tickets or numbers games, which to your point uh, are a lot more pernicious sort of on a, on a day-by-day basis. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about what these things are supposed to fund, right? You said early on that, hey, lotteries always need to have some sort of public good at the end of them. I do see when I see commercials for lotteries, they're like, to fund our schools and shit like that. Do lottery, I, I know there's many states and they all do it differently, but yeah. do you feel that on average they are funding the schools or is, is it a racket? they're funding something. <laughs> uh, they're definitely funding something. In some states, there's like a very specific program and like this program, and some of those programs aren't so great, but some this program, this merit scholarship in Georgia wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the lottery. Mm-hmm. So again, that scholarship happens to be super regressive and helps white suburban kids go to school and not poor black ones, but you know, so be it. <laughs> okay. It wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the lottery. In California, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. So this has been a problem in California, Florida, Illinois, Virginia, New York, where every lottery dollar that supposedly goes into the education budget, $1 of standard education appropriation comes out. Right, because the lawmakers are looking at it going, oh, we got all this lottery money, now we can cut the budget. Exactly. So, it, so it, the lottery is designed, it was supposed to supplement the education funding, but it ends up supplanting our already existing revenues. I don't love this, right? Because, I mean, look, California is a state, we've talked about this on the show before, that in the 70s dramatically cut property taxes. And there was yeah. this enormous shortfall. It's like the the one thing you need to know about California and why it is the way it is, that property taxes were, were slashed and then capped and money was immediately sucked out of the schools. Like schools suddenly found themselves with million, like $100 million shortfalls uh, in their budgets and they had to plug them quickly. And... So doing that with the lottery, okay, it's like another example of we've got a shortfall, let's plug it up. But you're now taking the money from, like you say, that one in eight people who are poor and desperate uh, and are sinking, you know, dollars that they could be spending, saving, their, sending their own kids to school, <laughs> right? To, to saving for college. Yeah, and six years later, six years after Proposition 13 in 1978, which slashes property taxes, is when the lottery comes in. Ah. And there's, it's this one company that does it, which we can get into. They would have done it a lot sooner if they could have, but the 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 atmosphere, the, the soil for the lottery was very fertile uh, and was laid by this slash in property taxes and this belief that, oh, we can offer all those pre-1978 services without pre-1978 taxes Thanks to the lottery. So, and this is the core, I think, of the argument against the lottery, right? That that this is a, hey, it funds schools. Well, it's a tax on the poor that you've enacted because you were not politically willing or able to tax the rich who own the homes, <laughs> right, instead. Or any other kind of tax you might want to do, an income tax or whatever. Yeah. Well, instead, let's do a voluntary tax that's going to fall on the people who can least afford it. Right. And this is where the inevitability argument is really important and it's really important to see how it falls short. Mm. This belief that the poor are going to gamble anyway, which, sure, are they going to gamble $91.4 billion every year? No way. Uh. Only only an entity the size of a state government with that much legitimacy and that much reach into every 7-Eleven in the country could ever uh, garner that much sales. And that's where, again, the inevitability argument sort of falls short, and I think we need to be a lot more sympathetic, uh, as you already were, uh, to the poor and the, those who decide to 
those who decide to participate uh, because there are no options elsewhere. Right. I mean, it's similar to saying, hey, people are going to drink, but that doesn't mean we need to have uh, beer funnels everywhere and like uh, Budweiser ads on TV and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like there is, uh, you know, we can still have a uh, harmful drinking culture in America, as I would probably argue that we have. Uh, and same thing for gambling. And this actually makes that turn-of-the-century lottery culture look even quainter and nicer now that we're talking about it because you've just got you just got your local small-time gangster. Hey, occasionally he has to kill somebody, but most of the time you're just saying, hey, put put five bucks on one, two, three for me. And then like, oh, you win 20 bucks. And like it's, it's just like that is fulfilling that need or that public desire for gambling in a way that isn't supercharged with, you know, state-run capitalism. Yeah, and, and to... To offer an example that I think uh, might might interest you, and I think having watched your show, I think it, it gets a lot of these questions about you know government's role in fostering the common good. Theoretically, in the short term, it's in states' best interest for more people to buy cigarettes because they make money on cigarette taxes. Mm. But you would never see the state promoting, oh, hey, everybody, let's go out buy buy, buy some Marlboros because uh, uh, California really needs some cash. But that's exactly what we get with lotteries. Uh, where the state is actively promoting them all every day for that just that reason. But again, this is so fascinating to me because we do feel, and we got to go to break in a second, but I got to get this question out. We 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 do feel that gambling is a vice in America. Like pe- we know that it's bad for us. We know that gambling addiction is a problem. There's a religious uh, prohibition against gambling. Gambling has been banned at many times throughout American history. When you ask people. You know, here in California, there were just two propositions on the ballot about expanding gambling in various ways, uh, in, in two very different ways, but both failed. Um, it's something that Americans have very mixed feelings about in the same way that we have mixed feelings about tobacco. Like you said, there were hearings on television that everybody watched about how the mob was controlling gambling. Just like in the 80s, we had hearings on TV about tobacco, and that, those were the pariahs. So it's fascinating to me that you would say, well, we wouldn't do this with tobacco, we do it with gambling. Well, why? It seems like gambling is something that we don't love as Americans. So, and we know that it hurts people. Everybody's got someone in their family who's, you know, grandma lost her house playing the slots. Like we, we know this. So why do we have this blind spot where it's we we sanction these things? Yeah, I, I think I think gambling, the, this belief that it everyone does it in some fashion, and there's always going to be excesses sort of helps, uh, takes takes the edge off a little bit mm-hmm. and the fact that it's been around for so long. But it's it's a really good question and I don't know why we've decided to sort of turn a blind spot yeah. to this issue. And and folks may, may have seen the last couple of days the New York Times put out a four-part investigation into the uh, sports, sports uh, betting industry um, and their sort of drive to expand. And there's nothing inevitable, nothing natural um, about the sort of situation we found ourselves in when it comes to lotteries or sports betting. Yeah, sports betting is actually a really interesting example because it is one that has been banned for a long time and you can make the argument, hey, people just want to bet on sports. I know plenty of people who just like, I just I put I put 200 bucks on the NBA season and I have some fun. Makes the games more fun. I get that. But also you can question, well, how supercharged is capitalism getting this? How how much is this going to infect every part of our society once they really start putting billions of dollars in marketing and penetration behind it? The Maybe the more interesting version of my question is, why were we able to see reason as a society about smoking? Why was smoking this incredibly 
capitalistic, well-marketed, culturally embedded, uh, extremely deadly practice, why were we able to beat that on a cultural level and, you know, decrease it by, I mean, obviously, smoking is still one of the, the greatest, you know, causes of avoidable death in America, but why were we able to have a cultural uh, reevaluation of smoking and we are not with so many other Problems yeah. like drinking and gambling. And by the way, I'm not a prohibitionist about these things. You know, I'm not someone who says, oh, all these things should be banned. But I also think we need to see reason when we have extremely powerful entities like tobacco corporations, like, you know, sports betting corporations that are able to take advantage of our own vulnerabilities and exploit people and hurt people and kill people. That's what I think we need to have some reasonable regulation of. Yeah, I think a lot of the the... The comparison when it comes to gambling is that the people who play and who lose everything are sort of out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll shout out to, to a member of my dissertation committee, Sarah Myloff, whose book about the history of cigarette, uh, history of political history of the cigarette and the organizing done by people who were basically sick and, sick and tired of sitting in a restaurant and there's a smoking section over there, but the whole restaurant still smells like smoke, mm -hmm. for example. And the political organizing around the desire for smoke-free spaces as being something that helped Get, get us to to tobacco regulation and there isn't a sort of spillover effect when it comes to gambling and everyone sure. every grandmother who loses their house to slots or whatever feels like an isolated case even though i hope when someone like me writes a book about it it's clear what the connective tissue is and why this is happening all over the country to all sorts of people and from all different walks of oh, life yeah Okay, well, let's talk about these corporations that are fueling lotteries. But first, we have to take another really quick break. We'll be right back with more Jonathan Cohen. Okay, we're back uh, with Jonathan Cohen. You write about this corporation called Scientific Games Incorporated. Uh, tell me about this company and how instrumental it has been in the spread of the lottery. Yeah, so they, Scientific Games uh, invented the scratch ticket, uh, as we know and love it today, first introduced in Massachusetts in 1974, uh, and they spread like wildfire across what were at the time the, the 13 or 14 existing lotteries uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, but they run into a problem where they keep, they wanted to keep, they want to keep selling their tickets, but no state is about to add a lottery. And they especially want to sell them in California. But what they basically do uh, is, a pro is a process called astroturfing, mm -hmm. where creating the illusion of grassroots organization, but in fact funded by a corporate self-interested entity. Wow. So in states like uh, Arizona, California, Oregon, Colorado, Missouri, Iowa, uh, and Washington, D.C., they create citizens groups, they write legislation, they take out advertising, they pay people uh, it, to go collect signatures. Um, great story about this is in Arizona. Um, it was the weekend when The Empire Strikes Back was in theaters, and they basically <laughs> signed up every single person in line to see Star Wars in 1980 to put the Arizona lottery on the ballot. Wow. And if the movie hadn't been in town, they wouldn't have gotten enough signatures and it would have failed. Wow. Wait, So, and they put it on the ballot like literally as a proposition in Arizona? That's right. So, and all you need for you know, because this way they're they're circumventing legislators or circumventing governors, anyone who might be sort of have these puritanical impulses about gambling. They're putting it right for the people to decide, and it's just the company paying people to gather signatures, writing the bills themselves, yeah. sort of taking advantage of this initiative. I process. thought this kind of thing was a uh, was a modern problem. The corporate sponsored proposition. It's obviously a big problem in California, other Massachusetts, other states around the country where. You know, some company that wants to earn one of the gambling propositions in California this year was yeah. by uh, a bunch of you know sports betting organizations. 
Um, but uh, this was one of the first. This was one of the first cases. Wow. You're, you're not wrong that this is this is one of the first companies, and this is a mid in, in, the, in the 1960s. There was like I, I, very very few initiatives passed in the whole country over the course of the whole decade, and it's only in the 70s and 80s that these start to come back. And Scientific Games is right at the tip, uh, right right at the head of, of of that wave of not just corporatized but even initiatives process more generally. And so this is. You know, we spent half of this conversation talking about, hey, why did the state get into the lottery? What was the appeal to the state? Why did the state take over from the numbers runners? Um, but the way you're describing it, it's like, oh, a fucking company did it. Like, it's it's not the individual legislatures going, oh, hey, let's make some money. It's it's a uh, it's decades of bullying and and uh, malfeasance by one large corporation. Is that correct? Yeah, and there's and there's a great there's a U.S. Uh, Senate hearing uh, in 1984 about the lottery issue, and this is two months before uh, the California and Oregon initiatives that are sponsored by Scientific Games passes. And Minnesota Senator David Durenberger says, "I'm afraid we've lost control of this industry," wow. uh, and, and the implication being that it's no longer up to states whether they're going to pass a lottery. It's up to the lobbyists and these companies who are either going to pass a lottery in some states, or once all these states pass a company driven by scientific games, all these other states basically figure it's going to come for us eventually, so we'll just do it ourselves. So they get a lot of uh, credit, mm-hmm. to put it kindly. Scientific Games does, even in a state like Nebraska that takes a couple, a couple more years and does it on its own without any lobbyists, but really probably had scientific games sort of in the back of their mind the whole time. Jesus Christ. So Okay, so even... Setting aside the issue of whether the money raised by the lottery actually helps the schools or if it's just replacing money that's getting taken out elsewhere, which it sounds like the latter is mostly true. But how much is Scientific Games profiting and the other companies that might be in this space versus how yeah. much is the state profiting? Like when I go buy my one lottery ticket, you know, my my uh, uh, my sister-in-law gets, uh, you know, gets a couple scratchers in her stocking every year. When that happens, who's really benefiting, the state of California or Scientific Games Incorporated? Right. So, so it depends on the state. Maybe 30, maybe maximum 40% is going to go to the state. That's it? In, in general. That's it. That's most, less than half, most, Jonathan. That's less, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's less than half. It used to be a lot more, and then basically players got spoiled, and they want more and more. And the biggest, the biggest chunk goes to prizes. Okay. So in Massachusetts, it's 72% is prizes. Some states, it's as low as around 50%. But it used to be 30, and then people wanted more, and then it went to 40, and then now all of a sudden, here we are, Massachusetts, is 72% uh, wow. or so of the money goes to prizes. Okay, well, um, I mean, that's that's good. That is who should be getting the money from a lottery. In a perfect <laughs> world, 101% of the money would go to prizes, and you would just right. be using it as a way not to take money away from poor people, but give money. Wouldn't that be great? If, if, the, if the lottery was a net win, and then you would... You are giving well. I guess then people would just buy an infinite number of tickets, so that would be a bit of a problem. But I, but I, this is a, this is. <laughs> I'm trying to come up Let's with, with a socialist lottery, Silicon Valley. We got we got an idea here. I think, yeah, <laughs> the movie pass of lotteries. Everyone is yeah. guaranteed to win more money than they spend. Um, this is socialism in action. Okay, but how much is Scientific Games profiting, or and these other right, companies? So- so roughly 10 to 15% is going to be spent on lottery administration writ large. So that's going to pay for the administrators, the, the people who actually run it. And then some percentage of that is outsourced to a company that prints the tickets. Some mm-hmm. states print them in-house. Some states contract with Scientific Games, which is still around today, even though it's owned by this Italian conglomerate, uh, to, to do all these services for them. A lot of states uh, in the... 2010 range tried to, excuse me, 2008-2009, they tried to privatize, like fully, and the George Bush administration said no. 
they have to there has to be some actual you know state control, but they can still outsource their printing and their lotto operations mm-hmm. and their computer services and their this and that. So Scientific Games at the time in the eighties was getting like two to three cents per ticket wow. max. And but still your state like California, you sell umpteen million tickets, that adds up pretty quick. The other one I'll say is your old bosses at a convenience store get five to six percent. Uh, of every ticket, um, both uh, some that sold, and then you get a bonus for cashing tickets. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is so so powerful that Southland Corporation, better known as Seven Eleven, uh, was one of the companies that helped push the Virginia lottery uh, in wow. the late eighties because they wanted the chance to sell tickets. Wow! Because yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm here in Los Angeles where I live. There are so many shops that you see these shops called donut shops. They have donuts. But the main thing people are buying are lottery tickets. There's not that big a market for donuts, you know? Like, it, they're too sweet. <laughs> they, they spike your blood sugar. You can only eat so many of them. And plus, they cost, what? how much does that donut cost? 75 cents? But, like, a lottery ticket, what they're selling is lottery tickets. Um, and that's what people are going in for and buying a donut to wash the scratcher down. So, uh, but, uh, but, you know, that makes me think, okay, those are all mom and pop shops, right? The, the idea that, oh, hold on a second, the 7-Eleven Corporation is basically a gambling company is not something I had considered that like, I mean, they sell hot dogs. Yeah, sure. You know. <laughs> but who's buying these hot dogs? Like, uh, I've, I've never once bought one and, and I've never seen one for sale. Sure, yeah. people like the Slurpee or whatever, but like the the fact that this is essentially you know these these large corporations with outlets all across America are are basically an an off track betting site, but uh, for lottery tickets is pretty wild. Yeah, and and I, I'm keeping an eye on whether and obviously this is going to be state by state as more states do get into sports betting. If a state like New York is uncomfortable with an app, whether they're going to literally become an off site betting terminal like we have in England where you have to go to your corner store and watch the games and that's how you place your bet whether 7-Eleven is going to open up like a sports book mm-hmm. uh, in every in every single 7-Eleven across the country you now it's, you know you need to yep. go to a brick and mortar store to place your sports bet for example um, I, I wonder if this is if the lottery is only sort of wet their appetite to to get more involved in the gambling economy yeah and I gotta say if you're talking about the, the amount of money that they can earn just talking about you know you said 30 say 30 to 40 percent goes to the state of California and you know, two to three cents on the dollar or 10 to 15 percent, depending on how you want to chop it up, is going to the private company. Well, that doesn't sound OK. They're not the biggest profiter. But if you're talking about like one company is making, um, you know, the same order of magnitude off of this as the state of California. Right. The, the most populous state in the country that has this massive school system. Right. The school system is getting 30 percent and this company is getting five percent or 10 percent. That's a shitload of money. Like, that is more money than a company needs to be making off of, you know, uh, uh, a legalized vice that is hurting people, in my view. Um, so, uh, uh, but, uh, so how much are these companies responsible for the growth of the lottery in America? Because as we said, okay, even if we want to call this, you know, something that people are just going to do, right? You can't really ban it, so why not sanction it? That doesn't mean you need to supercharge it. How supercharged has the lottery gotten? Yeah, yeah, and this is where uh, David Durenberger was right that we've that the states have sort of lost control. Where the states have this drive, and legislators, especially those who don't think about the lottery very often, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. All they want is for sales to go up. That's all they care about. They just want the the, the revenue mm-hmm. and. As a result, these sort of lotteries have free reign, and, and the companies will push it and they'll pitch new games. Ultimately, the, the decision and the responsibility lies with, with 
the administrators, some of whom, you know, maybe used to work for these companies, whatever. Right. Um, yeah, the head of the lottery but, board probably go, is pretty cozy with the lottery company, I would imagine. And there have been some actual, you know, clear corruption inside track to contract yep. type of and, uh, situation. And if you're that lottery administrator, if you're going to the legislature and you say, hey, guess what? I got you an extra $50 million, extra million, $100 million this year. Yeah. They're not going to look too closely on, hey, how many people in California or Missouri or whatever are addicted to gambling now who weren't before? Exactly. They're going to say, oh, good job. Thank you. Right, right. Yeah, you did your job, in fact, because your job is to raise money, not promote the common good. And and just to answer your question directly, this is how we get from $1 scratch tickets in 1974, and it's sort of complicated, but states didn't used to have multiple scratch tickets at the same time. There would be like one type of scratch ticket for the whole state, and then at some point it would end, and they would bring in a new type of scratch ticket, and that would be the only type. So eventually they start adding multiple types. Yeah. Now multiple costs, multiple t types of games. Texas just added a $100 scratch ticket uh, within the last couple of years. Wow. That's how we get um, Lotto, so the rollover Powerball games that start on a state-by-state -state basis in the 80s. Now we know them, Mega Millions, Powerball, all sell in all 45 states. How we get not just the daily numbers games, like once per day. You have Kino in some states where it's like every 15 minutes there's a drawing and you see people just post it up in a convenience store all day just wow. playing the lottery every 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, uh, betting on a different type. Again, some of these are introduced by the state and innovated by, by lottery administrators, and some of them are sort of pitched as the next, next money-making frontier from some of these companies that are going to get a cut of the profit on each sale. I mean, now that you're describing this, it's bizarre. It's completely bizarre. Like, I can imagine, you know, in the 70s, oh, this is sort of like a quaint little public service that we do. It raises a little bit of money. Sure, why not? But now you've got states, 45 states in the country, trying to, you know, every year get more and more people hooked on gambling, running ads on TV for gambling, uh, you know, have $100 scratch-off tickets, like, coming, you know, making them brighter and more colorful. I mean, like, imagine if the state ran slots. Okay, in some places they, they, they basically do. And I know in some states, a couple of them, you know, the, the state, like, runs the liquor stores, right? But the state isn't, like advertising on TV, hey, go buy some vodka today, <laughs> right? And here's, you know, we're paying Samuel L. Jackson to stand there with a beer in his hand and tell you, come on down and, like, get hammered tonight, courtesy of the state of Connecticut, <laughs> you know? Right, um, right, right. It's, it's weird. It's really weird. It's totally incongruous and at odds with what we expect the state government to do, which, yeah. again, is sort of promote the common good, however you define it. And I just don't see how selling lottery tickets is part of that common good. Yeah, it, it, it certainly doesn't seem like it uh, at this point, but it's also, it's semi-rational to see how we got to this place if you are a state legislator and you're like, hey, the school budget is getting cut and we need to raise some revenue and here's a way to do it. And again, it's more politically palatable. Like it comes down to what is so much the problem with so much of American life, which is our... Uh, the, the outsized power that A, corporations have, and B, that wealthy people have to avoid taxation. And you combine those two things together and you end up in this situation with just people, you know, making lots of little reasonable steps. You know, you come into the state legislature in, in 1986 and the uh, scientific games is like, hey, guess what? If we add a, a $5 scratcher ticker ticket instead of a $1 or whatever, then we'll get extra money for the kids this year, right? And, and you're like, yeah. oh boy, well, I'd love to... Even if you want to tax the rich people, it's hard for you to do it. Like it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a slippery slope that we found ourselves at the bottom of.
Yeah, and again, the fact that the people who play are less educated, are lower income, are non-white, mm-hmm. makes it easy to sort of overlook tax and on the stupid. And, fuck them. Yeah, they're like, yeah, hey, if it, you want to play, I don't, I don't buy them because I know they're a ripoff. If you want to do it, yeah, go nuts. That attitude. Right, and just, and just, uh, just. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I'll take my billion dollars a year from the lottery, and I'm not going to look too closely at where that money comes from and how exactly we got it. Yeah. Oh, man, what a bummer. Um, are there any states that don't do lotteries at all currently? There are five, uh, which surprise, which might surprise you. Uh, Nevada oh, oh, does not. Wait, Nevada? That was not I – was, I wanted to guess. That was okay, not going to be my first yeah. guess. Nevada. Yeah. I guess because what? It's it's a competition with the casinos. If you've ever been to a convenience store in Nevada, you know that there's plenty of gambling to be had in the convenience store, uh, just not in the lottery. Okay, so so let's really let's really call that four because, yeah, because right. Nevada is just has plenty of gambling by another name. Okay, I want to guess what they are. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna guess, uh, and don't tell me until I'm until I get them all right. But I'm gonna give you my justification. I'm gonna guess um, Utah because of the uh, religious people. Uh, because of the Mormons and, and all that kind of thing. I mean, they don't even drink Diet Coke there. So um, uh, I'm going to guess Vermont because uh, I was told once that Vermont has no roadside advertising. And so a state with its head on, on shoulders like that might know about gambling as well. Um, I'm going to guess uh, I'm going to pick one of the weirdo Western states. So I'm going to guess like Montana, like the states with like almost no government whatsoever. Um, so that's three. And then I got to choose one more. Ah. Uh, Ooh, okay. I'm gonna guess that it is Alaska because they got all that weirdo oil money. So Alaska's right and Utah's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, good justifications. Yeah, because yeah, Alaska just gives people a cut of the oil money every year, so they've got their vice another way, uh, which is through climate change. <laughs> That's what they're fucking up. And, and your justification about the Western state is sort of applies there too, where the state, the population is just so diffuse that it just doesn't make sense to, you know, how many convenience stores do you think are there in, in Alaska and how big could the mm. could the jackpot conceivably get right. uh, with, with that few people? Right. Um, so in addition to Utah, inexplicably, and I don't know why, Hawaii is the only oh. other state without any form of legalized gambling in the country. Wow. Wait, and isn't there, isn't there one additional one as well? There's one more, and it's Alabama, and they just can't get their shit together. They've been trying since <laughs> since 1998. They, 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 they voted in a Democratic governor in Alabama, if you can believe it, wow. to basically because he was going to raise money for the lottery, for education with the lottery, had a referendum the next year. It failed. White and black churches sort of mobilized against it. And then for the last 23 years, they've just been trying and trying and trying. Mississippi finally got their act together three, four years ago, started their lottery, can't get their ducks in a row. Wait, so Alabama didn't do something that is hurting the poor and poor people of color. Yeah. They, they tried. They tried. They just can't. They just can't figure out how. That's really surprising to me. Um, man, and do you feel that there is any prospect to change the lotteries that we have across America? I mean, it's so deeply embedded now. Um, that yeah. I imagine it would be very difficult. Like, if you even tried to make a change in California, you'd have people saying. Like, like God, there was a there was a law. Uh, we just had a, a referendum against um, uh, flavored vape cartridges and cigarettes in California, and you know, which are obviously really, really harm, uh, especially in the case of like uh, flavored cigarettes. You know, poor folks. Um, and you had people say, "Oh, well, this is going to hurt mom and pop vape shops," which, like, of course it will. Like, that's a real problem. But we need to ask what's more important to us, and is this the way we want our mom and pop shops to be earning money, and or should we make a larger change? You would have that uh, that uh, argument supersized if you tried to touch the lottery at all in this state. I imagine in yeah. many others. So, is there any prospect for change? So, I don't think 
No, you know, no state has gotten rid of their lottery since 1890s, hmm. so I don't think it's uh, going to happen anytime soon. I don't, I don't think we need to aim that high. I think there are levers at the Ooh. state level that can be pulled that would make lotteries fairer and less harmful to the poor. Like what? I'm talking about things like like getting rid of that $100 scratch ticket in Texas, for example. Maybe we go back down to 25 as a maximum. Um, Powerball Mega Millions, you know, just hit $2 billion. Uh, why don't we add a prize cap? You know, they can't get above... One billion. They can't get above five hundred million. Um, these are, and there, there are a couple others. You know, related to advertising. States that have um, that can't advertise their lotteries in certain ways, or can only spend a certain amount of their budget on advertising. All of these have precedent. All of these used to be pretty common mm-hmm. in the lottery world, and then basically states just wanted more money and got rid of them. Why, in your view, would it make a difference to cap the lottery at one billion rather than two billion? Because for a lot of people, I feel like, hey, the, the B is the important part, or even the five hundred M. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. And and by the way, I want to I want you to return to your point about how this sort of has skewed Americans' notions of wealth because I thought that was an interesting argument you alluded to earlier. Yeah, and and that and that's exactly why I why I would propose it being limited. And again, it used to be very very common until you know the late 80s the new york prize was capped at 50 million uh, nowadays powerball and mega millions start at 40 million mm. uh, so this is a, a sort of recent recent um a- a- adaptation um i think first of all if it, if there's a prize cap of any kind and maybe a billion is too high to your point we should stick to 500 million um, a prize cap of any kind means that it's not going to create this type of media frenzy uh, in the same way that gets people Involved and that, for in a lot of cases, gets people in the door and turns them into committed players because there's this phenomenon where you play your aunt's birthday and now you feel like you got to keep playing it because it's going to hit eventually. Uh, and if you ever and then and then you get to the point where if you don't play it, you feel like it's and it did hit, you're going to regret it. Yeah. So you just play to re- re- to avert the re- the regret that you would feel if you would win, even though you're not going to because the odds are one in two hundred ninety two million. Yeah. So. It sort of it accidentally hooks people um, once you're playing, even even though that doesn't happen all that often. Um, and then the second part is exactly as you said: is I don't think it's a coincidence that as you know the word billionaire entered our lexicon, that lottery prizes hit a billion dollars for the first time. And Lotto, these rollover jackpot games, emerged in the 1980s, which also saw the birth of Fortune magazine and the Forbes 100, and sort of this culture of wealth and the celebrity CEO and lotteries. Uh, big jackpots helped everybody feel that they had a stake in that wealth. And maybe if we didn't have it, uh, maybe we didn't have these big jackpots, more folks might be willing to sort of set expectations that are uh, reasonable yeah. about about what the American dream looks like. That go back to this 1950s vision of a white picket fence rather than, oh, the American dream means a seven-car garage and a mansion in Beverly Hills. <laughs> well. There's certain things about the American dream and the '50s and the white picket fence that I think we should do away with as well. Yeah, let's be careful. Yeah, let's be careful about. I don't mean to be nostalgic. How white is this picket fence? (laughs) That's right. I'm I'm nostalgic for a a time of economic egalitarianism. Yes. One that I agreed should be should be multiracial in a ways that it was not uh, in the mid mid 20th century. Um, But this belief that we're all in this together when at a time when worker CEO pay was sort of relatively in line compared to the way it is now. Um, And again, the lottery has helped inculcate this belief that, oh, eventually I'm going to get rich. Yeah. And, and rich rich now means $2 billion, not just, you know, a couple hundred million. 
Uh, and that's uh, been very helpful. Yeah, it's something that only that only one winner benefits from and this giant corporation benefits from. What if we were able to come up with a model that actually increased our civic participation and you know made us feel like everyone was benefiting? Like, for instance, we started this talking about small town uh, lotteries and, and raffles and things like that to say, hey, the, the local college wants to build a new dorm. The church is trying to build an annex or whatever. And it's clearly a fundraiser, right? Right. You go when you go to that church raffle, you know, nobody's expecting to get rich. You're expecting, hey, I'm going to win a date with a pastor who is so handsome. And so I cannot wait. Um, and you're, you're you know that you're helping out your community and you're you're putting in money into something that you think you will benefit as well. It's an old fashioned barn raising kind of idea. And you're right. The modern lottery is really the opposite of that. And, and maybe there's a that that other ethos, that smaller, more egalitarian ethos that we can return to, hopefully. And Spain does sort of something sort of like this, where their lottery, uh, it's called El Gordo, but it's a massive <laughs> jackpot, uh, sort of equivalent to the, the billion dollar thing we'd have today. But the game design is in such a way that you'd have like 1800 winners who get $4 million each oh. or something rather than one guy or woman in Sacramento who gets $2 billion. And isn't that sort of emblematic of the American culture of individualism that we've sort of given this one person the $2 billion rather than sort of spreading a smaller amount around to, to more people. Yeah, if we did something where you put the money in because everybody will be helped, not just you. Like, that's that's the big win, is if we yeah. can all do it together. Um, like, hell, what if you even did... Uh, you know, when you when you when you do, when they're doing crowdfunding, they do stretch goals. You know what I mean? Hey, if we raise this much money, we can give everybody this benefit. You could do that on a state basis and say, hey, everyone, if we all buy lottery tickets, like you know, all the we can add music classes or whatever the fuck. <laughs> right. Like that could be part of the point, rather than you'd be a billionaire and you're you're set for life and all this sort of thing. Um, well, well, unfortunately, it is part of the appeal now. Where I mean, this is more so states like New York. They do have this amazing commercial of this like someone buys a lottery ticket and then this like little kid comes out from behind the aisle and starts singing a song and then the back of the oh, convenience God. store opens and it's a whole choir of kids thanking them for being a friend okay. by buying a lottery ticket. Okay. And again, technically it's true, as we talked about, yeah. the lottery does benefit education, but it is again trying to create this illusion that, oh, schools are just swimming in cash because of the lottery dollar because every single one, you know, 99% of every lottery dollar goes to school. Well, I take it, so I take it back, but what if it weren't marketing? What if it were reality? You know, yeah, uh, right, right. And and what wouldn't if, that be nice? What if what if we just figured out a way to tax people that uh, you know they felt a little bit better about, and we could we could create a better uh, you know we could create more transparent system of what our taxes are used for, and we could get rich people to pay their fair share, and how about that? You know, and we could have that sort of overall uh, uh, communitarian ethos. Um, yeah. In, in any case, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, the book is called For a Dollar and a Dream: State Lotteries in Modern America. Of course. You can get your copy at factuallypod.com slash books, where every purchase will not make you a billionaire. It will instead support Jonathan's work, support this show, and uh, support your local bookstore. Thank you so much, John, for being on. Uh, and I'm sorry for calling you Jonathan because you told me at the beginning John was fine. But thanks for being here. Right. I'll, I'll never forgive you, but uh, <laughs> thanks, and, and good luck to everyone. Good luck, and um, uh, play my birthday. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. So nice to meet you. 
Well, thank you once again to Jonathan for coming on the show. I hope you loved that interview as much as I did. If you want to check out Jonathan's book, you can do so at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Kyle McGraw, and everybody who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. I'm reading all the names this week. Here we go. I want to thank A, Adrian, Akira White, Alexi Batalov, Allison Liberato, Alan Liska, Ann Slagle, Antonio LB, Ashley, Aurelio Jimenez, Benjamin Birdsall, Benjamin Cornelius Bates, Benjamin Frankart, Benjamin Rice, Beth Brevik, Black Cat Jackster, Brian Gregory, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chase Thompson Bow, Chris McKinless, Chris Mullins, Chris Staley, Clifton Vargas, Comrade Crunchy, Courtney Henderson, Daniel Halsey, David Condry, David Conover, Devin Kim, Drill Bill, Duck Moo, Dude with Games, Eben Lowe, George Rohack, Goner Maleggies, Harmonic, Hillary Wolken, J. Scott Christensen, Jason Burbage, J. Sal, Jim Myers, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Caitlin Dennis, Caitlin Flanagan, Kel Crow, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Kevin France, Kevlar, Lacey Tiganoff, Lacey Garrison, Larry Latouf, Larry Studenmund, Lauren Sandburn, Lisa Matulis, Lauren Fieldhouse, Maggie Hardaway, Manuel Garcia, Mark Harris, Mark Long, Martin J. Lawlar, Martin Tithonium, Marvin Weichert, Matt, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Coke, Neil Gompa, Nicholas, Nicholas Morris, Nikki Batelli, Noah Dowd, Nuyagik Ippaluk, Oren Cohen, Paul Mauk, Paul Schmidt, Peter Zeglin, Rachel Nieto, Richard Watkins, Robin Madison, Ronald C. Waits, Rosamund Sturgis, Rosie Gutierrez, Roy Ziegler, Ryan Shelby, Samantha Schultz, Sam Ogden, Sasha Chu, Sean Smith, Senior Bolsa, Scooper, Super Duper, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, Thomas Lewis, Tim Kearns, Tim S. Root, Vincente Lopez, Vornak, Weed Milk, Whiskey Nerd 88, and Will Bogey and Zach Zim. Thank you so much to all of them for their support. If you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. We would love to have you. Thank you so much to Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the beautiful custom gaming PC. I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media, or at adamconover.net. We'll see you next week on Factually. Thank you so much for listening. A podcast network.